We turn again this evening to John's first epistle, 1 John chapter 5. First John 5, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not light. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, Whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If any man see his brother sin, a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness, and we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. 
The text that we consider together this evening is verses 14 and 15 of 1 John 5. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us, and if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we draw near the end of this first epistle of John, we must yet remember the great theme of this epistle. It's a theme to which the apostle has been pointing us and teaching us throughout. We are those who live in God's fellowship. That's the covenant of grace which constitutes the very essence of Christianity. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, has been our confession since the third verse of this epistle. In this knowledge is the fullness of joy. That life in God's fellowship has many different applications and implications as we have seen, much of the focus on, of the apostle is on the wonderful assurance and confidence that is ours when we live by faith in the consciousness of this fellowship with him in our Lord Jesus Christ. So now as he concludes this epistle, John will call our attention to the same confidence as it pertains to our prayer life. And this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. It isn't necessary to emphasize the vital importance of prayer to our lives as Christians. We, we considered that not long ago in our treatment of the Heidelberg Catechism. Prayer, as we have seen, is the chief part of thankfulness which God requires of us. We've also been shown from Scripture that the, the truth of the Catechism's instruction that God will give his grace and Holy Spirit to those only who with sincere desires continually ask them of him and are thankful for them. But our text this evening reminds us that we stand before that vital necessity of prayer with, with a peculiar privilege and purpose. One of the most wonderful aspects of our relationship with the Lord God is that we are able to pray with confidence and to have assurance before the glorious throne of his grace. The fact that the apostle has mentioned this before in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, now returns to the same truth at the conclusion of his epistle tells us that this truth is important to us from a practical point of view. 
There's nothing more important when it comes to our prayer life than that we are able to approach our Heavenly Father with confidence. Our text tonight speaks of prayer with confidence. So as we consider that theme, I ask you to notice with me three things. A wonderful acceptance, a defined content, and a certain fulfillment. The text speaks of a wonderful acceptance with God when we approach him in prayer. That's an amazing thing. We ourselves are accepted of God. What a glorious truth that is. We look at ourselves and we can hardly believe it. Who can explain how the perfectly holy God would ever forgive a single soul? But so it is, the work of God's grace. He has revealed himself not only as just, but the justifier of the ungodly. And he has revealed himself as such to us. We have seen that eternal life which has been given us by God. We have enjoyed the fellowship of the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We know that. We've laid hold of Him who is the propitiation for our sins. We love God because He first loved us. Indeed, as we have seen in chapter 4, verse 16, God dwelleth in us. And we in God. And we know this because he has given us of his spirit. What a blessed privilege, therefore, that we may call upon him as those who are members of his household. Those who live in the fellowship of his covenant family. That's the source of our confidence in prayer. And you can readily understand the importance of this gospel truth in connection with prayer and confidence in prayer. If I were to have any doubts in my mind as to whether God has accepted me, then prayer would be nothing more than a shot in the dark. If I were doubtful as to whether God is there and whether he's listening to me, I would not possibly be able to pray with any confidence whatsoever. Prayer must begin, therefore, with the knowledge of our acceptance with God. Indeed, of God having embraced us as his own in Jesus Christ. Once again, we see in this text the importance of our relationship our covenant relationship with God our Father in Jesus Christ. That that relationship is ours by faith. It's that which determines the whole Christian life, including our prayer life. 
God is not some abstract being of our imagination, the cause of which we gather in a form of worship on Sunday. He's not some force with a capital F that happens occasionally to reach down and and move us in ways that make us religious all of a sudden. How many are not lost with exactly that view of God? All of a sudden there's trouble in their life and they run to God. They don't have room for him any other time in their life. But that isn't the view of of God that determines the teaching of the apostle in this text. I say again, when I'm a child of God, I know him as my father. I stand in a relationship of of special intimacy, a relationship of deepest love, a relationship of certainty in knowing that he seeks my welfare, indeed my salvation, even through all things. And when I call unto him, therefore, I know that he hears me. And that's a matter of emphasis in the last part of verse 14. He heareth us. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. You immediately sense there's something special about that fact that he heareth us. There's significance in that hearing. After all, there there is a sense in which God hears everyone. Just as he sees everyone and everything with his all-seeing eye, nothing can be hidden from him. And yet the idea expressed in the text is, is that of a hearing that is different. We are told in John 9, verse 31, Now we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. In other words, there's a sense in which God does not hear those who walk in sin. It isn't that he doesn't hear what they say or see what they do but he rejects them. And you have the same idea in Proverbs 28, verse 9. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. That refers to one who walks in sin, who rejects God's way and precepts. He might pray with that formal reciting of religious words, And God hears that prayer. He hears in the sense that he is fully aware of what that person is doing. But that prayer is abomination. When we understand that, and then we look again at the words of our text, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us, then we realize this word heareth is rich in meaning. It means that God 
receives us in his favor. He hears us in his love. That was illustrated by Jesus at the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. We read about that, you remember, in John 11. And I refer specifically to the last part of verse 41 and the first part of verse 42. Just prior to raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus lived always in the consciousness of the relationship in which he stood to his Father. He knew that when he prayed, and many are the times when Jesus prayed, when we find him in prayer, recorded in Scripture, he knew that when he prayed, he had his Father's ear. And when you think about it, that's an amazing truth, because we who are fathers know that we don't always give attention to our children. How many times aren't we distracted with other things? Oftentimes not even important things. And our children are speaking to us, but our minds are elsewhere. That's never the case with God. We may be confident that he is waiting to listen to us. And he does so because of his great love for us. As has been expressed many times and in different ways in this gospel epistle. If you know that you have eternal life, the life that is in Christ Jesus, if that life therefore is evident in you and therefore lives in your consciousness, if you are living in God's fellowship, you know that God is always ready to receive you and listen to you. There's no reason to doubt whatsoever. That's always why when we approach him in prayer, we have reason to do so always with thanksgiving. Thank him for who he is, for what he has done for you, for his redeeming you and adopting you, for his willingness to receive you in love and to hear your prayers. Remember what the Spirit tells us in Philippians 4, verse 6, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. 
And that brings me to the second aspect of my first main point, the first point being that we find a wonderful acceptance with God. We've been talking about our own acceptance with him as those who stand in this relationship that he has established with us and realized with us by adoption in Christ Jesus our Lord, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. But the second principle set before us is this. Not only are we ourselves accepted, but we have confidence that we are accepted with him. And again, this presupposes the relationship in which we stand to him. Confidence is an element of faith. You will remember as the Heidelberg Catechism has repeatedly called this truth of Scripture to our attention, faith is the bond that unites us to Christ. That's that's the essential character of faith. It's that bond that unites us to Christ. When God unites us with his own dear son, he does so by establishing that faith connection with Christ. But there's more because he calls that faith connection to our consciousness. He calls that to our consciousness by the preaching of the gospel and makes that faith active in us. It becomes a living knowledge of fellowship with God, of his fellowship and love, a knowledge which also moves us to embrace Christ and all his benefits. Not only is it true that through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, Hebrews 11 verse 3, but through faith we have that life eternal which is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It's the knowledge of love, the knowledge of a living relationship with the only true God and his son Jesus Christ our Lord. So rich is that love because it originates in God himself. The knowledge of faith, therefore, is rooted in the glorious fact that God loves us. And if we know that God loves us, then we also have confidence with him. With the life that is ours in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Ephesians 3 verse 12. We're sure of that acceptance with God because of our relationship to Christ. In that relationship with Christ, we stand face to face with the living God and have confidence of our acceptance. That confidence is toward him. There isn't isn't confidence in anything we bring. It isn't in ourselves or our approach to God. It isn't in our piety, our godliness, our 
our religiosity. It's a confidence that is entirely focused upon him, and it's based upon who he is and what he has done and is doing in making us his children. And therefore, our confidence extends to this. Our prayers are accepted by him. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. No, well, not only does he hear us, he gives us what we ask. That's the text. Now, it's evident from Scripture that this text cannot be made to teach that I can bend God's will to serve my own. And you realize that that's a common conception among church people today. Pray, and God will give you whatever you ask. But that's a corruption of this text and of all scripture concerning prayer and concerning our relationship with God. And yet, for all the dangers of fanaticism and of the corruption of this text, we may not make it say any less than what it says either. So it's important that we give careful consideration to what we are to ask of God as those who find acceptance and therefore who approach him with confidence. And that brings us to our second main point. When we speak of a wonderful acceptance with God, we must also recognize that the content of that which is acceptable to God is also defined for us. we must not be found guilty of taking certain words in this text out of their context. That's a common problem. There are people who focus on certain words and certain statements and they ignore their settings and their qualifications. So they look, for example, at the words, if we ask anything, and in verse 15, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we desired of him, and they pray for and even demand things that the apostle never sanctioned. They make requests of God with their thoughts focused entirely upon self. Putting God to the test, as it were, with their claims in many cases fueled by the false doctrine of the name it and claim it, or the prosperity gospel so-called, they would claim to be followers of this text, when in fact they are defying it and setting up themselves for great disappointment, because the God whom they serve then is an idol, one whom they would make serve their own wishes. They show themselves like the priests of Baal. When Elijah challenged them, 
And they cried aloud and cut themselves after this manner, seeking to get the object of their insane worship to respond according to their own pleasure. Jesus exposes that thinking in Matthew 6, verse 7, when he says, but when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Let's be careful, therefore, not only to approach God in the proper relationship, but to observe exactly what Scripture does teach here in this text. The content of that prayer, which is acceptable to God, is clearly defined in verse 14 by the clause, according to his will. The text does not say, if we ask anything, But if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. When we live in a right relationship with God, we not only desire his will, we seek it. Let's understand when the apostle speaks of asking anything according to God's will, He's not talking about adding a little phrase to our prayers so that we ask whatever we want and then we throw in, if thy will be done, if it be thy will. But when we ask anything according to the will of God, we are doing something very significant. In our asking, We are putting ourselves in the same position of the God who is willing it. We're looking at the particular subject of our prayer from the viewpoint of our Heavenly Father. That's what we're attempting to do. And in asking, we identify ourselves with Him who wills and who in willing governs everything. And we identify ourselves with him because we are one with him. Remember, that's already implied in the confidence that we have toward him. As I said, confidence implies love. The apostle himself has called attention to that throughout this epistle, as we have seen. And we love him because he first loved us. Chapter 4, verse 19 Our love for God always seeks his will. Now let's look at this concretely so that we have its practical outworking clearly before us. Not only is it true that we know the will of God generally, but we also know his will in many particulars. The Holy Spirit who lives in us gives us to know the will of God. We are told expressly in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God. 
That implies that the Spirit gives us to know the objective truth of the Word of God, but also the application of that truth. He causes us to know in particular circumstances what is the will of God, so that we seek to pray for and to do God's will. And in those circumstances, when because of the cloudiness of our sinful minds and our sinful natures, we do not clearly discern the will of God, we will seek that will in our prayers, praying, Thy will be done. So we pray. When we draw near to God and ask for more love, for the strengthening of our faith, increased spiritual zeal, more godliness, more resemblance to Christ, the subjection of our mortal enemies, forgiveness for some particular sin or in general for the sinfulness of our natures, when we ask for the consciousness of our justification, growth in sanctification, a greater sensitivity to our own sin that we might flee from it. When we pray for greater faithfulness in prayer, a pure heart, a willingness to forgive one another as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven us, we know and are assured that we are asking for those things that are according to the will of God. And we are confident for our fellowship with Christ that it is in the heart of God freely and fully to bestow upon us that for which we pray. If, on the other hand, we were to storm God's throne with requests for things that merely serve our own desire, we could have no such confidence in prayer. And when our prayers are not answered, we do well to question ourselves, is my prayer right? So that the answer may be coming at a later time. Or has it already been given and misread by me? Or am I receiving the correction of James 4 verse 3? Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your own lusts. But to ask rightly, to ask according to the will of God, is to pray with confidence. Yes, boldness. When pleading for God's blessings and spreading such desires before him that seek his glory, being according to his will, the believer may with boldness enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is not effectual by its length, nor its eloquence, 
not even its passion, but simply by the living sympathy established between our pleading soul and the living Savior interceding for us in the heavenlies by his Holy Spirit. The Spirit takes the desires which are in the heart of Christ and works them in our hearts so that they become our desires. He takes the plea which is upon the lips of our great advocate and he seals it upon our lips so that we pray in Christ's blessed name. In him, we have fellowship with the living God. We need not stand afar off, therefore. God will have us come to him with large requests, large desires, earnest expectation. He says to us in Psalm 81, verse 10, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. Such is the surety. Such is the confidence of prayer when you live in God's fellowship, being in Christ by a true and living faith. So we are also promised a certain fulfillment of our prayers offered in such confidence before God. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Now there's something absolutely remarkable about that verse. The inspired apostle does not say we shall have, he says, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. We already possess them. We don't see them yet, perhaps. It may seem that the answer is slow in coming. But because we pray in the confidence of our fellowship with God in Jesus Christ, we know that at the very time we pray, we have the petitions that we ask of him according to his will. And the blessedness is seen in this. We speak of that which is all of God. Prayer, even our prayers to him, is God's way of carrying on the communication of his own household. The household of faith. The eternal I am has given to us eternal life in his son. He's pleased to give that to us through prayer. We meet in prayer and we speak together. And we meet on the basis of that fellowship, that eternal life that he has given us in Christ Jesus. The certainty of prayer's fulfillment, therefore, is established upon the truth of God's own faithfulness. I pray having eternal life. 
My prayer, therefore, is the working out of that identity, that relationship that is mine with the living God through Jesus Christ. I'm a dweller in the secret place of the Most High, abiding under the shadow of the Almighty. And knowing that great privilege of living in God's fellowship, my prayer must be confident, even bold, when I rely upon confide in him whom I love, who loves me. Our life is exalted above the trials and dangers of this present time, being hid with Christ in God. So suppose a loved one is sick, to use an illustration, and sickness seems to be taking that loved one to death. How shall we pray? What are we to ask of God? If we merely look at the situation from from our human perspective, From the viewpoint of our earthly relationship, we don't need time to answer that question, do we? Because the instinct of our natural affection and love moves us to cry unto God that he spare so precious and needful a loved one. But as one who lives in God's fellowship as partaker of life everlasting, and therefore who seeks his will and glory, we also recognize a weightier responsibility than crying unto God from our own earthly perspective. And we might, therefore, for that very reason, be inclined to hold back our request. But we must not. We are called to occupy in prayer a singularly high position in God's fellowship, there to pour out our hearts before him. And we're to do so boldly and in all confidence. We are to do so recognizing that he alone is our God, our faithful Father for Jesus' sake. And from that position, therefore, we apply our mind along with our Heavenly Father toward that which is best. We talk it over with our sovereign friend without holding back. We plead. We spread before him all the consideration that might seem to have any bearing on the case. But when we find ourselves unable to say positively as to what is best, from the viewpoint of God's sovereign purpose and perspective, we might be reduced to strong crying and tears. as was Jesus. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? 
Do you remember that? And then he said, Father, glorify thy name. Does that mean his confidence in prayer was gone? That he was left with nothing but to cast it upon God? Not at all. In fact, we are told in Hebrews 5 verse 7 that in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him, he had complete confidence in being heard in that he feared. And it's when we know not what to pray for as we ought that the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, Romans 8, verse 26. Our groanings, that which we cannot express in word, the Holy Spirit takes as his own, turning them into prayers acceptable unto God. For he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So I say the certainty of prayer's fulfillment is established in the faithfulness of God, with whom we stand in this blessed covenant relationship For Jesus' sake, may that truth govern our prayer life. Amen. Heavenly Father, may thy name be glorified and thy works magnified as we seek thy face in prayer from day to day. And grant that we may live in the consciousness of the fellowship of thy love and the wonder work of Christ our Savior for us and even in us by his Holy Spirit. Sanctify us for thy name's sake. Amen.